0: But we start with news just in the long list for the 2023 Women's Prize for Fiction has just been announced. Our own Louise Kennedy is one of the 16 names on the list for her debut novel, Trespasses. Now in its 20th year, the prize is open to women writing in English anywhere in the world. And Alex Clark is here to, to tell us more. You'll forgive us, Alex, if we want to start with Louise Kennedy on Trespasses.
1: Of course, <laughs> of course. Well, I don't blame you. You know, this is a book that I've given away so many times. To so many people, and I don't think I've yet to find, find someone who yeah. hasn't really loved it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Ali, I've, I've, Louise was on with us on the program. Actually, we had a, we had a big outside broadcast uh, from the Hugh Lane Gallery, and she was on speaking to us about uh, the, the particular novel. It really tells this uh, a, a kind of a love story set during the Troubles in a, in a small town outside Belfast. It's she creates a wonderful world here
1: that's right it's it's a, a a young woman a catholic woman who spends her life doing things like working in the family pub uh, who meets an older protestant Barrister who spends much of his working life defending those who have been uh, falsely accused, Uh, and they have, you know, as we can imagine, a sort of unlikely relationship. Mm. It doesn't always run smoothly, as you may imagine. And as much as it's about a sort of love across a sectarian divide, uh, it's also about love across a class divide, Mm. and it's just fantastically grittily well told economically told uh, but it packs the most powerful punch
0: yeah it's a it's a a very fine novel it has won the Eason Novel of the Year here in Ireland and at at last year's Irish Book Awards and now Mm. I know you're speaking to an Irish audience but use your journalistic (laughs) objectivity how strong a contender is it uh, because we will talk about other books on this but how strong a contender is it do you think
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm going to be absolutely truthful. It is always very difficult to say. This is a field of 16. There are a very, very varied list of books. I would say, again, you know, just talking about the personal responses that I've known people to have uh, to the book, uh, and I I thought it was outstanding. Uh, I certainly think it's in with a very strong shout. Yeah. Uh, but these things, as we know, are rarely predictable.
0: Yes, personal uh, likes and judges' likes and the they've, they've dynamics that go on when a judging panel have to choose something that with That's some right. kind of consensus brings up a whole, a whole other set of difficulties, I suppose. It's not alone in being a debut novel uh, on this list of 16. Quite a few there. Uh,
1: uh, nine, in fact. I mean, they're not all... Uh, first books, I mean mm-hmm. Louise Kennedy yeah. herself you know, wrote a collection of short stories, The End of the World is a Cul-de-sac uh, and people have done all sorts of other things, I mean for example Jennifer Croft, whose who's novel Homesick is on the book, is also a, a translator and she's actually won the International uh, Booker Prize for her translation of Olga Takarczuk's, uh Flights and she also translated that immense Olga Takarczuk book, uh, The Books of Jacob uh, so people have done all sorts of different things but there are, as you say, there are none. Nine mm. debut novels and that does speak fairly strongly to me of a judging panel who wanted to put new reading experiences new voices new names and new ways of telling story uh into into the public arena
0: does it also tell us something about the the, the, the state of um, the health, the good, the rude, good health of writing, particularly uh, in in the area of women's fiction, uh, of these these debut novelists? As you say, yes, many of them have done other things, but you know, a novel is still a novel, and a debut novel is still a debut mm. novel.
1: Absolutely, um, yes, I think it does. I mean, I certainly think it it speaks to the fact that. Uh, there is an interest and a thirst, actually, oh. uh, for publishing and for reading uh, a wide range of books. I mean that this this list of of sixteen writers is notable. Uh, for the range of voices there are people from all sorts of ethnic- ethnicities backgrounds geographies telling different kinds of stories I mean one novel for example Leline Paul's pod is told from the point of view of a dolphin so you know we, 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 <laughs> yeah. we're we not going down the kind of straightforward <laughs> realism route yeah. uh, you know there are so many different ways of dealing with narrative on this list.
0: And, you know, we've mentioned the fact that there are nine first novels on there, if we should call them out, I suppose that's maybe a better way of of categorising them. There are big names on this list as well, well well-known names.
1: There are. I mean, I I guess people will immediately uh, notice that Maggie O'Farrell's uh the marriage portrait uh which again uh, you know it's, it's it's sold extremely well it has had great reviews is on this list she won the prize not you know three years ago with Hamnet uh and barbara kingsolver's demon copperhead a, a, a sort of updating retelling of david copperfield a transplanting of it to the appalachian mountains uh she won slightly longer ago she won in 2010 uh, uh with her novel lacuna uh so yes and natalie Haynes Again, a, a well-known novelist. Her book, *Stone Blind*, uh, a, a, a retelling and updating again uh, of the myth of Medusa, yeah. uh, is also on the list. So yes, it is not as though uh, there there is nobody who we recognise. But I do. I I personally, am so thrilled when there is a list where I think yeah. actually these are writers who I just haven't read. I don't know what to expect, but I'm going. I know I'm going to discover. Something, many things. things probably. Yeah. In fact, mm. we, we've spoken mm.
0: to Maggie O'Farrell, Barbara Kingsolver and Natalie Hens about all those three books that you mentioned and yes. <laughs> they are as engaging as interviewees as they are as writers. I'd be hard put to, to, yes. to choose between them. Also, I suppose notable is Glory, which was shortlisted for the book or No Violet Bulawayo.
1: That's right, and, and you know that is a, a sort of a, 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 it takes the kind of uh, way of writing of, of George Orwell's Animal Farm in the in the sense that it is a, a political satire. It's a hmm. story about recent political. Uh, history and turbulence in Zimbabwe uh, and it is told by all the animals I mean you know so it's not just dolphins all the animals who who live in this in this kingdom and it is a fantastically engaging novel and a very Mm. searing one as well.
0: Um, now, I know you and your friends clearly will be very fond of Louise Kennedy and <laughs> trespasses, but if you had to look for other forerunner, uh, front runners at this stage, it's difficult to do, I suppose, Alex, because of those several new voices that are on there.
1: It is. We, we. It absolutely is. I think we're all going to go away and do a lot, of, a lot of reading. I mean, there are several that I have read, but there's an awful lot that I haven't. There's an awful lot I'm very interested uh, to read. For example, Priscilla Morris. Now, she actually she lives in Ireland. She lives in Monaghan, and she teaches creative writing at UCD. And her novel, Black Butterflies, is set in Sarajevo in 1992. Mm. And I, I think part of it is, you know, originated in her, her mother story she's uh, her mother uh is yugoslavian and her father uh cornish i believe um so you know that that's an interesting thing you're looking at that at the distance of just over you know 30 years uh, ago um 40 years ago uh and and thinking what will she have have made yeah. of that uh so that's a very interesting one i have to say elsewhere uh, there's a novel called Cursed Bread by Sophie McIntosh and I, I would say I, I don't think I can resist a novel called Cursed Bread <laughs> and immediately <laughs> makes you wonder what it's about yeah. doesn't it and a, just another way I mean um, a, a book called The Dog of the North by Elizabeth McKenzie I believe that The Dog of the North of the title is a van uh, that, the, that the protagonist right. travels around in but I was a great fan of her her previous novel I, The Portable Bedland so I'm really
0: looking forward to that One, one final thing before we wrap up Alex mm. Um Uh, Good news regarding a non-fiction prize for next year.
1: That's right. They, uh, you know, uh, noting that an awful lot of the non-fiction prizes are short and long lists are dominated by men. Uh, the Women's Prize for Fiction are have announced that they are, are setting up uh, an equivalent prize, a sister prize, as it were, uh, for non-fiction, which I think will be awarded mm. next year and submissions from this year.
0: Right. Well, listen, um, g- good to get your thoughts on it, Alex. Off you go now and start that reading that you have to do between I know. now. I'll
1: be busy. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Not
0: at all. uh, that's uh, Alex Clark there speaking to us about today's long list for the 2023 Women's Prize for Fiction and of course particular uh, congratulations and great hopes uh, on our part I would say for Louise Kennedy and her nomination for Trespasses Richard Eyre's 2001 biographical film, Iris, starring Judi Dench, Kate Winslet and Jim Broadbent was nominated for three Academy Awards and six BAFTAs. He's also directed many films for the BBC, including The Insurance Man, written by Alan Bennett, and King Lear with Anthony Hopkins. His latest film, Hallelujah, sees him reunite with Judi Dench to celebrate the spirit of the elderly patients in the geriatric ward of a small Yorkshire hospital that is threatened with closure, whilst paying tribute to the humanity of the medical staff battling with limited resources and ever-growing demand. It's based on the 2018 Alan Bennett play of the same name. Delighted to be joined by Richard Eyre in the programme this evening. Had you seen um the Alan Bennett play, Richard, or how did you come across this?
2: No, I, I had seen it. And the the play is really very different to the film the play had a series of act divisions, uh, divisions between the dramatic scenes where the choir of old people sang. And this, they appeared, the choir appeared maybe five or six times during the evening. And then it ended with the choir doing a sort of dos macabre kind of uh, song and dance for old people. And when we came to, to think of the film, Heidi Thomas adapted the script so it became instead of the the surreal life the universe of of the theater it became much much more realistic and I hope that it's true to to the life in a geriatric hospital
0: did it become more political as a result of that uh, entering more into the realism the world of realism
2: um, I think it probably has, because although the original contained all the subject matter, embraced the subject matter of the film, it presented it in a way that you might think that it's much more lighthearted. So I think what the film has preserved is Alan Bennett's voice, which is very idiosyncratic and humane, witty, and very piercing. It's political. In the sense that it does argue that the important things—care of the ill and care of the old—and that we're failing in in both departments. Uh,
0: and how much personal experience did you draw on? Uh, you know, obviously you had Alan Bennett's script there, and then the adaptation by Heidi. But how much personal experience did you draw on in kind of realising the the emotional world of this film?
2: I've spent a lot of time in geriatric wards my mother was in a geriatric ward for 10 years she was then as happens in in the film she they needed a bed and she was as they describe it decanted to a care home and then she died within a week and the other the other thing that um brings me close to the subject is that i'm about to be 80 in two weeks time so i'm of the age that um Qualifies for for geriatric medicine. God forbid that I need it. So you know, it, it's very close to my experience in many ways. One
0: of the things that that Alan Bennett and obviously Heidi and her adaptation has done has has picked up on this. He really gives us a a great sense of the, I suppose the personalities and the the lives, the full lives that these people ha- have have led. There is this temptation to think a geriatric ward is full of geriatric patients and that's, there's two wonderful labels and therefore you lump all these people in together and presume they're all the same. He manages to really make us think about the individuals, doesn't he?
2: That's exactly right. and And that's the absolutely crucial point is that you can't lump these as a collective of, you know, the moment you say geriatric and there's a sort of, Um, all-embracing term that takes away the the individual humanity. So what was important in making the film, as well as Alan's writing, is that you give life, you give individual attention to each of these lives. And Alan's writing is marvellous in the way that he shows people recalling the past.
0: Let's have a listen to... um, What's happening here is that we have a few of the patients in the hospital are sitting down. There's a film crew that has come because the hospital is threatened with closure. A film crew has come to to make a documentary and hopefully save the the local hospital. But each of the patients has to give a little bit of their background to the film crew to get a sense of who they are. Uh, In the midst of this clip, we will hear from Lucille, played by Marlene Sidaway, Neville, played by Jeffrey Kisson, and Mavis, played by Patricia England, and they're all encouraged by a young nurse nurse Pinky played by Jessie Akel
2: well
3: i was a housewife and i brought up a son who emigrated to australia that's an achievement in itself also
2: my father had a chain of confectioners shops oh did he do vanilla slices I I don't recall.
1: can't be much of a confectioner if he didn't do vanilla
2: slices.
1: (laughs) I had a wild side. But nobody's ever interviewed me about it. I think you should talk to Neville next.
2: Tell us about yourself, Neville. Even just tell us why you're in the bath. Because I'm
1: old. Well, we're all old. What's the matter with you besides? Did you have a fall? Well, not everybody falls, Mavis. I'm here because of my dizzy do's.
3: By rights, I ought to be a private patient. Oh, what does that matter?
1: Dead, we're all on a slab in our birthday suits.
0: I used to work in a factory. I had ten men under me.
1: So did I on a good day?
0: So there's a clip from the film "Alleluia." Director Richard Eyre with me on the program this evening, and we really get a sense from that, Richard, of just the breadth of experience. You know, we've the quite prissy Lucille in some ways. You know, with the with the confectionery shop, and she wouldn't even know whether they had whatever type of slices, vanilla slices. And then at the other end of it, you have Mavis, the Patricia England character, who who has a wild side that nobody's ever asked her about. As she says, yeah.
2: I, I just love that. I love the the difference in class that is shown in such a subtle way that the the woman boasting about her father's confectionery shops, and the the derision of the person from a slightly different class, and that that's pure Alan Bennett country. That delineation of narrow delineation that that people maneuver themselves into to show that they're marginally in class terms above somebody Mm -hmm. else. It's so brilliantly well observed and so eternally characteristic of, of Alan Bennett's writing.
0: Obviously, you have a cast here of hugely experienced actors. You know, I wonder to what extent, without belittling anything that you had to do on the on the set, uh, Richard. To what extent was it a case of just turn on the camera and let these people do what they've been doing for years so brilliantly?
2: Yeah, well, that's pretty much my job. My job is get the script. I think Judy Dench would be good. I call Judy Dench up, say Judy. There's this part of a librarian. Uh, the film is set in Yorkshire. Judy said, oh, Yorkshire, fantastic. Of course, I was born in Yorkshire, but I've never been asked to play a Yorkshire character. OK, I'm on for that. <laughs> um, you know, I so, say, well, are you going to read the script? Because Judy, on the whole, either takes the advice of her friends or, uh, and her agent. So I'm afraid it's true that, you know, I put them on, I set the camera up and say, action. <laughs> and um that's the job not to get in the way of these really really clever actors uh, yeah. i mean when you look at david bradley's performance it's one of the most detailed performances and most moving performances oh. I can remember seeing for ages.
0: Yeah, he plays a, he plays a minor who's um, quite ill but maybe not ill at all. You know, as, as, as we progress, we find out that perhaps he's just lonely and he wants, he, he wants to be around people in this hospital as opposed to in a care home. But you mentioned Judy Dench there. Let's listen to a clip. She plays this character of Mary and Mary is making a film of, of things that are happening in and around the hospital and we'll hear Bally
2: Gill here as well.
1: Oh, camera... Hidden inside there?
2: Yeah, you can take a still pictures or a video and, as I've explained, then the filmmakers might use your footage in their documentary. It's no thicker than a monthly periodical.
1: Has it got a mouse?
2: <laughs> you don't need a mouse, Mary. Everything is operated via the touch screen. Now, swipe on the icon like we did before. With greater gentleness, as though you've seen a speck of dust and wish to brush it away. <gasps> ah. You' put us all out of a job.
3: <laughs> I said that to my computer the
1: day they digitalized the library. I was at the forefront of modernization. Well, what do you wish me to record?:
2: Well, the filmmakers say they simply want your point of view. for you to record what you see, to tell them what your life is like. <gasps> I could tell you something about that chair.
0: Only I won't. Astonishing, um, Judy Dench there, but I also wanted you to tell me a little bit about Bally Gill because this is a, this is, I think, pretty much a, a very early performance from him, and he's he's the centre in some ways of this piece.
2: He is the centre. He's he's idealist in contrast to Jennifer Saunders' character, who's the, the the pragmatist. Bally Gill, I saw play Romeo at the Royal Shakespeare Company. I thought he's very considerable actor. And I I think he gives quite remarkable performance. I think this is the first time he's played certainly a a character of any substance on film. And he gives absolutely no sign of inexperience. It's a very assured and humane, Mm. complicated um, Performance.
0: Final question, Richard. Uh, you know, having made this film, which is all about it it is a love letter to the NHS in in many ways, and it's all about the closure of small hospitals that are so important to local communities. Are you confident that that these type of institutions can last? Are you confident that the NHS can last even in its current state? And I'm sure you will say paltry funding?
2: Well, of course I would be an idiot not to believe that we're in terribly straitened times what needs to happen is there needs to be a substantial objective look at provision of health in the country and provision of care for the, uh, old people and that needs to be absolutely across the board you need to say this is what we need to do how much is it going to cost are we willing to pay it
0: Thanks very much for that Richard and we'll finish up with another clip from Alleluia This is Jennifer Saunders uh, playing one of the nurses Sister Gilpin in fact from the film Alleluia and here she meets Colin Coleman played by Russell Tovey and Colin Coleman is the son it turns out of the character that Richard has mentioned to us earlier the character played by David Bradley
2: If you have a new registrar we have a policy of nothing below the wrist. You watch you'll have to take it off I'm a visitor, not a doctor. Oh, yes, of course, a T-shirt. Still, it's a fine line these days. If this is Dusty Springfield, I'm looking for Joe Coleman. Might ask if you're a relative? mm mm-hmm. his son. The son that works for the health minister? No, just the one who works in his department. I'm an independent management consultant. Mm, nevertheless, he's told us all about you. Your chauffeur-driven car, your bank mm. holiday at Checkers. That was purely social. Right, well, I shall escort you to the office. I'll come back and take Molly to the lavatory. Stay here.
3: Come on.
0: There we go. Jennifer Saunders as Sister Gilpin and Russell Tovey as Colin Coleman in a scene there from Alleluia. Directed by Richard Eyre and Ed in text. Keen that I should mention. Arguably Richard Eyre's finest film, says Ed. The Plowman's Lunch. Happy to add that into his list of credits. And Richard Eyre's new film, Alleluia, will be in cinemas from St. Patrick's Day, March the 17th. If ever... A life, not to mention a body of work, deserved a major three-part television series. It is Frida Kahlo, world-famous artist and feminist icon. That life played out in the first half of the 20th century. She was born in 1907, three years before the Mexican Revolution. She and many of her fellow artists so identified with that particular revolution. She was, by nature, a radical. Her paintings are not for the faint-hearted. Identity, the human body, and death are three subjects she returns to again and again. Becoming Frida Kahlo begins on BBC Two this Friday and Christine Leach has watched it for us. She joins me now from our Cork studio. She has such a a, a reputation, really, Frida Kahlo, and it has very much grown since her death in 1954. Um, Really vivid, searing self-portraits, instantly recognisable. Why does she matter so much as an artist, do you think, Christine?
4: Ooh, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is actually the question that this series says it's just setting out to ask. Um, although it doesn't necessarily deliver us with an answer. Um, she's iconic, as you said. And mm. I think, um, you know, there isn't a person who when you say the name doesn't have a picture in their mind so that is remarkable for any artist for that to have achieved that with their body of work and such a short life she was only 47 when she died um, and it's almost impossible to tell the story in a three part series mm. because it is a remarkable life spanning a really significant uh, period of time um, th- this series um, sets out to ask two questions there, and, and it foregrounds them at the start of each of the three episodes they are who was she really really? And why is she more famous now than ever? Now, I have to say, I don't Think that it really answers those two questions, which is a, a kind of enduring frustration with the series. That said, it is sumptuously shot, it has fantastic mm. contributors, and there are some really interesting moments of analysis around the paintings.
0: Yeah, and who was she? It's the really bit there that's the, that's it's the, the hard really. bit so, to answer. You know, and,
4: and what we see is that she is painting a version of herself yeah. that she presents to the world. And I really don't the director of the series is Louise Lockwood, um, and she's actually a graduate of the Glasgow School of Art, so she has an art background Background And this is obviously um, where her interest in the subject matter comes from as well. Um, it, 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 it's, you know, the beginning of the series says, you know, um, let me tell you a story about a little girl born in Mexico. And, and the voiceover actually says this is no easy story to tell. And in a way, I think that's a bit of a cop out because um, it's, it, it has chosen as its narrative anchor the relationship between uh, Frida and, and Diego Rivera she was married to mm. twice um, and it presents that relationship as the key thing in her entire life um, and that's a reading that I have some difficulty with because you know towards the end of the series it is, it is it is pretty much saying and one of the contributors I think says as well that this key relationship in her life was more important than anything including her art now that's something I would yeah. definitely challenge so um, you know after I'd watched the whole series the, the, the series is called Becoming Frida Kahlo but I did do a bit a research around how it was commissioned, and it was originally commissioned under the under the working title of Frida and Diego, and that actually makes more sense because it is a series about Frida and Diego, I think.
0: Yeah, and you'd much rather see becoming Frida Kahlo than one that goes into the if Frida and Diego that's again and again. That's the series I again. wanted, to be yeah. honest.
4: I think the story about Frida and Diego has been told; it's yeah. been told before. You know, and um, now there are new insights here, and that's and that's important. But um, I, I just felt there were she had relationships with a huge variety of very interesting people and there was so much more to be explored in all of those, you know.
0: Yeah, well, let's, let's have a listen to a clip actually which gives us a sense particularly of her uh, activism in terms of politics. So this uh, talks about Frida, the radical student. And we'll hear several voices in the midst of this. Students from very different backgrounds were joined in a single place and learned all together. This is a generation of change, Frida becomes part of this.
2: The students were very much involved into politics. The Communist Party was very powerful at that time in Mexico, and they had meetings and and they had marches. And Frida joined the young section of the Communist Party.
4: Dear Mama, Today I will stay at school because Diego Rivera... We'll deliver a lecture. I believe it's about Russia, and I would like to learn some about Russia. If you would like to come, let me know at noon. Send me five cents for an ice cream cone and five cents for quesadillas.
2: Your daughter, Frida. If you were a student in the National Preparatory School, such as Frida was, there is no
0: way you didn't know who was Diego Rivera and what he was painting. So uh, in the midst of that this that's a clip from Becoming Frida Callow news, a three part series that's on BBC Two starting this Friday and Christine Leach has been watching as far as so the voices that we heard there Louis-Martin Lozano first of all an art historian then the biographer Mark, Martha Zamora and finally uh, the voice or penultimately in fact the voice of Gabriella Cherda there reading Callow's diaries now yeah she mentions Diego Rivera that he's going to give this lecture but she says an awful lot more than just his name he's kind kind of a an adjunct to all of that political activity which that's what i would like to find out more and more about and of course her early life and the, the accident that you know was a very important Event in her in her teens,
4: yeah, and the series really does um, paint all of that really well. Excuse the pun, it really does look at her involvement in the communist movement in in terms of how it influenced her her thinking and her decision making. She saw Diego Rivera as this extremely important leader, and um, she also thought his painting was remarkable and wonderful. When they got married, um, he, he was twenty years older than her. They got married when she was twenty two, um, and she had gone to see him painting when she was um, much younger. Um, Um, and then re-encountered him later. Um, The story about the accident that happened to her in Mexico City when she was about 18 that accident almost killed her and in Mm. fact the doctors said they couldn't believe that she'd survived it and it was the cause of all of the pain the multiple surgeries she had throughout her life and also she had two pregnancies that didn't um, last and and, you know that was a source of pain for her too and of course the series actually one of the things it does very very well is look at the paintings she made around abortion and miscarriage um, and really looks at those very very well so that's one of the things The series does actually very well and very sensitively and very beautifully, in fact, actually looks at how she portrayed pain in her work and how that was a driving force in her work.
0: The series mixes um, archive footage uh, with, uh, uh, is is dramatised too strong a word to use in terms of the, the, the contemporary footage that we see?
4: Well, you know, it w- one of the things that it does, which I found jarring, is there's some contemporary footage, just street footage and location footage, which you can see was shot very recently because mm-hmm. some of the people are wearing masks. So it's clearly shot during the pandemic. Um, and that for me just visually didn't work. It it, it pulled me out um, because it makes great use of archive footage. And what it does with the older stuff is it relies on diary entries. So you heard the Mexican actress, um, Gabriela Cerda, who you mentioned there, she's reading from Frida's diaries and that's really well done and that voice is actually gorgeous and very well dramatised, and 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 the footage that, that goes with that is brilliant. And um, we also have Lucian Block's granddaughter, who has her diaries which she reads from um, and so there's, there's really good use of archive material but then there's also this very jarring use of some contemporary footage which I just it just didn't work for me. Um, it doesn't really use contemporary dramatisation as such mm. um, but one of the pieces of footage which is absolutely remarkable comes in the last episode which is of Frida Kahlo's funeral and I've never seen that footage before and it's incredible because it focuses very much on Diego Rivera's face and without even the need for much voiceover or talking you can see how he feels At the funeral, and that's quite remarkable to see that footage.
0: Do we get uh, much of the Trotsky story? Because that's a big part of. There's so much of the
4: of the Trotsky story. I mean, at one point I was writing in my notes: "There's too much Trotsky in this." Um, There's too much Diego in it for me as well, to be honest. Too much of a focus on his painting. Um, The the Trotsky story is is remarkable. To you know that they were members of the Communist Party, both Frida and Diego. and, um, you know, he, he came to Mexico uh, essentially um, on the run mm. um, and came to live in the Blue House, which was where Frida had grown up. It was her parents' house and it, it became her home. Um, and and Frida slept with him. Um, you know, she had numbers of numerous affairs um, and, and so did Diego. This was part of their relationship yeah. that this happened. Um, you know, it's, it's very interesting the way in which she was um, really attracted to people she saw as rebels, as pioneers, as strong political thinkers. Um, You know, she was very intellectually attracted to people who who were pushing the boundaries and trying for new things, you know. So there's lots about that. There's there's an awful lot about um, the attempted assassination of him, which Diego fled Mexico afterwards and and then he was later killed. Um, So there's a huge amount about that. But for me, that took me away from the the story of Frida and her art. I felt a lot of that material and other material too could have been um, covered in a line or two and then bringing us back to, to Frida and her life so yeah. I
0: mean, there, there were more relationships said, some of them were referred but there were serious relationships and important relationships in her life as yeah. well are, are, are those covered I mean I'm thinking possibly George O'Keefe might fit O'Keefe into that the George O'Keefe relationship
4: is, is, is mentioned uh, not gone into in very much depth um, she also had a relationship with Andre Breton's wife mm. Jacqueline Lamba um, there is a, a bit more detail in the last episode around her relationship with uh, the photographer Nick. Nicholas who who is the person who took those colour photographs of her that people might know. Um, they're, they're, they're famous and he was a pioneer of colour photography. But the way that the um, programme uses those images and talks about her relationship, particularly with photographers, because she did actually have affairs with a number of photographers, men and women. Um, it speaks about that as, as a collaborative part of her practice as an artist, that she was hugely right. conscious of how to pose and how to be a subject. And the series Presents that, and this is one of the things it does very well, as an aspect of her art practice that was more collaborative than anything else. You know that she was very much attracted to people who would make mm. images of her, and she knew what she was looking like. She yeah. knew how to look at the camera, and she also knew what she was wearing and how to portray herself yeah, which in that is way. All
0: over where I suppose that title becoming um, Frida Kahlo comes from. Does it work? Mm. It sounds like a bit of a mixed bag the way you're describing it to okay, me, Christine. Yeah. Does it
4: work? I don't want to be too negative because I, I, it, it, I'm making it sound like a mixed bag, and it is a mixed bag. And I think one of the problems I had with it was that it sets itself up to tell one story and in fact it tells another story. Even right through to the very last piece of it, which is where we're you know we're, we're we're realizing that in nineteen in, in 2021, not too long ago, her 1949 painting, which is Diego E.O. Diego and I, that sold at auction for thirty-four million dollars. And that is remarkable. And oh. that is the thing that tells us that she's so significant, yeah. you know, this value in the in the market. But also, I think, as you said at the beginning, the fact that she is known worldwide, her image is known worldwide. My first Frustration with it really was that it. I, I think it's like a ship that sets sails w- with one lot of equipment and baggage to go on one journey, and then it changes direction halfway through, but it right. still has the equipment and baggage uh. for the original journey with it. So, but but having said that, it's it's worth watching. Worth watching. Um, and I, but I would say for anybody who, who's interested in um, Frida Kahlo and her life, um, go back and have a look at the Salma Hayek film that was made based on um, Hayden Herrera's biography. Yeah. That's a 2002 film, and and you can watch it on a few streaming platforms. And that's 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 also I'll, remarkable. I'll too, yeah.
0: yeah. Okay, yeah. well, thanks for that, Christine. That's Christine Leach speaking to us about Becoming Free to begins on BBC Two this Friday evening, the 10th of March. You're listening to Tuesday Night's Arena. Sample of some of the genius of Italian film composer Ennio Morricone. Snippets of themes there from The Mission, Cinema Paradiso and A Fistful of Dollars. This Thursday, March the 9th, the Pavilion Theatre in Dunera plays host to an evening celebrating the great Italian maestro, his profound legacy, bringing the audience on a journey in celebration of Morricone's contribution to music and cinema. programme has been put together by a six-piece ensemble comprising soprano and tenor voices, piano, cello, violin and viola. Two of that sextet are with me in studio this evening, soprano Katie Kelly Kelly and Annalisa Monticelli on keyboards. Uh, I think this started out as an idea for you, Annalisa Monticelli, and I think the hint might be in the fact that there's a touch of Italian in that name.
5: (laughs) A touch of Sicilian, to be precise, (laughs) yes, uh, Uh, When Morricone passed away on July 2020, just in the middle of the pandemic, I wanted to celebrate him. And unfortunately, you know, it took two years until music went mm. back live here in Ireland. And I called my friends and I said, Why don't why don't we put together a little ensemble and do a performance for Ennio Morricone? And Lyndon Castleton host us and it went so well that it sold out in like ten days. Yeah. And we said, Well, let's add the second night to the performance. And it sold out again. And then I thought, well, maybe we should bring this performance in a little tour yeah. across Ireland. And then Katie took over the PR and we are up to, I think, eight or nine venues at the moment yeah. that are we
3: hosting have, us. We have seven confirmed dates in the diary all around the country and we have three more pending. So yeah. uh, if you keep an eye on our Instagram, you'll see where we're yeah, going. And
0: that's Katie Kelly Soprano is the, yeah. is the Instagram where you, you will get all of the details on that. Let us hear some of the music because I love the mix that you have here. Obviously, it's only the two of you, but you managed to get some of the others on a backing we track for, to help us along. in this. what's the first piece that we're going to hear, Katie?
3: This is from Once Upon a Time in the West and um, we have, we pre-recorded our strings for this because it's really important that you hear the full scope of the show, which is, you know, featuring Mm. the strings, vocals and piano. So we have Once Once Upon a Time in the West, which is Jill McBain's theme. So whenever she comes on stage in the movie, this is the music you'll hear.
0: So Katie Kelly there with the music of Ennio Morricone from Once Upon a Time in the West and you also heard in the mix there Annalisa Monticelli on piano and the strings provided by Francesca Nardi on violin David Forte on cello and Anne-Marie McGahan on viola. Just as I was listening to that, Katie, I was thinking, you know, we we heard Gabriel Zola at the beginning of this. I presented a concert of, of film music recently with the with the concert orchestra and Gavin Maloney, who conducted, talked about the ability that uh, Morricone has to write a melody for, for you as a singer you, that must be really obvious because you sing the, the vocal version of Gabriel's oboe Nella Fantasia?
3: I do so the piece was originally written for uh, oboe and um, I'm sure finally Annalisa wants to demonstrate the motif there we all know this tune on flute on oboe excuse yeah. me and um, in uh, when the film was released, the song was so popular that Sarah Brightman actually decided, mm. oh, hey, there's a, there's a song in there's this. There's a tune in there. <laughs> so she wrote to Marconi and she said, please, can I sing this? And he refused her. So she loved it so much, she just kept writing to him and writing to him and writing to him. And eventually he consented. And it said that she wrote the lyrics, which were then translated into Italian and it translates as in the fantasy.
0: Yeah, OK. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting story around that for sure. And obviously he's held in great regard in this country. He's much loved... Uh, any of Morricone's concerts sell out in, a, in, a, in an instant. Now I think his son continues them on uh, as after his father's death. What is his cultural status in Italy and in Sicily across the whole, that whole part of the world, Annalisa?
5: I think there's no equal as a musician right now on, on the respect that people have for Morricone because his ability to reach in everyone really, from the mm. classical musician to the popular musician, from the kids to the older person, I think has no equal. And he really left a gap that it will be very hard to be replaced. And if you think of the awards he received all over the world, that just tells you Oscars, uh, Golden Globes, Grammys and yeah. many Italian awards. I think there's really no one like him in our current time and it will take probably decades until someone in Italy will be as important as him. Yeah,
0: and I know even as we were playing our, our little mashup at the beginning, you were saying, oh, we're playing that, we're playing that. So we'll hear <laughs> all of the great tunes, all of yeah. the lovely tunes. you have a second piece for us, Katie?
3: We do. Um, this is Nella Fantasia, or Gabriel. Oboe, and, um, yeah, in the fantasy it translates us.
0: Right. Okay, well, let's hear Nella Fantasia then. <laughs> to see you there or Gabriel as always, we recognise the tune the music of Ennio Morricone Katie Kelly soprano singing for us and Annalisa Monticelli on piano and Annalisa and Katie joined by their compatriots Morgan Crowley uh, tenor uh, Francesca De Nardi on violin David Forte on cello Anna-Marie McGahan on viola to make up this sextet that will be performing the music of Maraconi at the Pavilion Theatre on this Thursday the March the 9th full details there on paviliontheatre.ie and then heading out on that tour that uh, uh, Katie mentioned to us and full details of the upcoming venues on that on Katie Kelly Soprano on Instagram if you want to follow along.